Please join me in the prayer for God to illumine our hearts and minds. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. Listen to God's word for us. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure, for you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The palace of aliens is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy in their distress, a shelter from the rainstorm and a shade from the heat. When the blast of the ruthless was like a winter rainstorm, the noise of aliens like heat in a dry place, you subdued the heat with the shade of clouds. The song of the ruthless was stilled. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's New Testament reading comes from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Near the end of his letter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Odea and I urge Shintake to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I also ask you, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. 
Keep on doing the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. The Brothers Grimm tells a really strange story about a boy who is the youngest of two sons. The boy has little knowledge or skill of any kind except for the odd trait of being unafraid of anything. One day when the boy's father suggests he learn something useful, the son replies that what he wants to learn more than anything else is how to shudder. So begins his journey to learn how to fear. And it's going to be quite a long journey, it turns out, because not only is the boy without fear, he is also without love. He is unable to relate to others in any way that is human. He throws an innocent man down the stairs of a church, leaving him lying crumpled in a corner before he goes to bed. He beats an old man with an iron bar and seems unmoved by his act. He fears nothing, loves nothing. The boy, later in the story, now a man, finally learns to fear. He finally learns to fear when his wife throws a bucket of cold ice water on him as he sleeps. It's a good idea. He wakes up startled, asking, Oh, what is making me shudder? What is making me shudder, dear wife? Yes, now I know how to shudder. And now that he can shudder, perhaps he will also learn to love. There is so much in our world today that causes us to fear. So much that stirs up our anxiety. So much that makes us shudder. We know it's always darkest before the dawn, but it seems that things are a little darker than usual. This past July, as our nation prepared to celebrate its birthday, the Pew Research Center shared the results of a study that revealed that just 12%, just 12% of Americans are satisfied with the way things are going in our country. In addition to that, failing grade, 71% of people describe themselves as angry, 66 as fearful, and just days before our nation's birthday, only 17% of respondents called themselves proud. I'm guessing that since July, those numbers have only gotten worse. The economy remains a mixed bag, Really good for some, really bad for others. Multiple hurricanes are battering the South, causing anxiety in some as they worry about irreversible climate change. And then there is the beloved political discourse in our nation. A conversation that has grown so polarizing, so disappointing, so vile, that one has to wonder if we have the capacity to solve the complex problems we face and remain one nation under God. There is so much in our world, in our lives, in our city that causes us to fear and to worry and to shudder. And into that worry, that anxiety, that fear, the Apostle Paul speaks words that are just as relevant today as they were 
over 2,000 years ago. Rejoice in the Lord always, he writes. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you don't know the context in which these words were written, you might easily pass them off as some poor attempt at the power of positive thinking. If you did not know to whom they were written and from where they were penned, you might think that their author is blissfully unaware of the realities of global terrorism or corporate greed or climate change or political division or racial strife. But nothing could be further from the truth. When Paul writes this letter, he is in prison, unsure if and when he will ever be released. He also writes these words while he's cut off from the people he loves the most, the people of Philippi, Philippi, a church that is experiencing, without his presence, they're experiencing troubles and tensions, fault lines that are threatening to tear them apart. When Paul writes these words, he's not avoiding his present reality by painting some Pollyannish picture of what might be. He is looking right at the challenges his life presents him. And amidst all his worry and concern and legitimate fear, he tells those he loves to rejoice in the Lord always. A few years ago, my son's Cub Scout troop visited a local fire station in Ohio. While the kids were on the tour, I struck up a conversation with one of the firemen. I asked him about how his work and how things were going at the station. Firemen here in Cleveland Heights, he said, work 24-hour shifts. That's one thing that makes us unique which means there are three teams of firemen in the station that rotate one day on and two days off. I asked him curiously if these teams of people typically stuck together over a long period of time or if they would change intentionally. <laughs> that question made him laugh. They mostly stay together to build up trust, he said, but sometimes we have to shake them up a bit. Sometimes people just don't get along. Sometimes people just can't work together. It was then that he paused and looked out at his brothers and sisters who were sharing stories with the kids who had come for the tour, stories about rescuing people from fires, rescuing people from illness, saving people sometimes from themselves. And after looking at them for a moment, he turned back to me, and preached an eight-word sermon. As you know, the world is not perfect. At first, I wasn't sure why this statement, this obvious statement, struck me so deeply at the moment and in the weeks that followed. But upon reflection, I think it was the source that gave the words such weight. Here was a guy who had committed his life to saving people he doesn't know. Here was a man who responds to calls for help, no matter who makes the call. Here's a guy who runs into burning buildings to save people. 
And he does all this knowing the world's not perfect and likely never will be. And yet it was clear to me in that moment that he loved his co-workers and enjoyed, deeply enjoyed, the work he had been called to do. When Paul tells the church in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord always, he does so knowing their community of faith, their church is far from perfect. In other parts of his letter, we learn that the church is dealing with opponents who are causing them suffering of some sort. We don't know the exact nature of the suffering, but Paul is concerned the suffering might tear the church apart. He also talks about an internal strife in that community of faith. Two leaders are caught up in a battle for power that is threatening the church's mission. But it's a third challenge that church faces, that church in Philippi, that concerns him the most about the community. False teachers, he says, are spreading a form of Christianity that does not line up with his understanding of God's mercy and God's grace. They are teaching a law and circumcision-based faith that could confuse the Philippians into believing that they can accomplish righteousness and peace through their own words and deeds and actions. Staring down their greatest fears and anxieties, Paul worries they might come to believe that they can save themselves. In 1829, French painter and physicist Louis Daguerre presented a new photographic process to the French Academy of Sciences. The garotype, as it was called, was the first publicly announced photographic process, but it was not for the faint of heart. The garotype was best suited for still objects, which meant, which meant that those being photographed had to sit still for 30 minutes with their eyes open and their heads clamped into place to keep them still. It's no wonder that most of those early photographs we see the folks look miserable. They probably were. It was a groundbreaking step in photography, and while the process is fascinating to learn about, what I find even more interesting was the response people had, the response people had who had their photographs taken. People who had their photographs taken were afraid to look at their pictures for any length of time. They were embarrassed by the clarity, the unaccustomed detail and unaccustomed truth revealed to them startled them and made them uncomfortable. To look upon the world and our lives in unaccustomed detail and unaccustomed truth can be startling. To see clearly all that we have and all that we have to lose will cause us to worry and to fear and to feel anxious, which is why we need to take Paul's words to heart here today. Worry, anxiety, and fear are completely normal human responses. They are normal and healthy responses to suffering, to violence, to injustice, and uncertainty. There is, after all, an evolutionary advantage to detecting a threat, real or imagined, while jumping out of your skin because you thought a stick on the ground was a poisonous snake, 
or jumping during a run because you hear a rustle in the bushes nearby, why that might be embarrassing for a moment, missing the snake altogether or getting run over by the deer can be deadly. To be human, to be engaged in the world, is to worry and fear. It's how we're wired, which is why it is what we do with our worry and fear that matters the most. I'm currently reading a book about addiction, and in one of the chapters, the author discusses the need for people struggling with addiction to face head-on the shame that often fuels their addictive behavior. To illustrate this point, he tells a story about a famous deep-sea diver, an instructor who teaches his students when they're learning how to dive. He teaches them if they see a shark in the ocean, turn around, face it, and swim towards the shark. It's counterintuitive. I would run like crazy. But swimming towards a shark and not away from it might just save their lives. You see, sharks are so used to being the big fish, the predators of the ocean, that they can be startled when they are treated as prey. Swimming at a shark breaks its concentration and often causes the shark to swim away in fear. If we want to grow and learn, if we want to overcome or manage better our addictions, our anxieties, our insecurities, and our fears, we have to have the courage to face them head on. Because our capacity to face our worries and our fears and our anxieties is directly linked with our capacity to love others as Christ commands us to. People who can shudder are people who can love. We fear evil because it threatens us and those we love. We, we are anxious about change because it forces us to adapt. We worry about the future because we want it to be a safe place for our loved ones. Ask any parent of a newborn about the protective instinct that overwhelms them at the birth of a child. Love is the root of all fear. In fact, the only sure way to limit your exposure to anxiety, to worry, and to fear, you want to eliminate those things from your life completely, there's one sure way to do it. Choose to love nothing or no one. Refuse to love and you will know no fear. Focus solely on your own well-being. Focus on your righteousness, your own safety, your own agenda. Do this and you will get as close as you can to being fearless. But it's into this coldness that Paul shines that warm light of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always, not sometimes, always. Again, he says, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, with gratitude. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, did you hear that? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
I don't think Paul is denying our fear and anxiety with these amazing words. With these timeless words, I think he's teaching us what to do with the fear and anxiety that is a natural byproduct of our commitment to love. Love is messy. It's hard work. To love someone or something opens us up to hurt and to loss. It's vulnerable. Love costs us something. Which is why the most important thing we can do with all the fear and anxiety and worry is to give it up to God in prayer. Now when I say prayer, what I mean is making time each day to sit in stillness to make time each day to have some introspection, to make space each day to sit and rest in God. Words are optional, really. You can pray on a walk. You can pray in your room. You can pray in the car. I'm telling you, just be still and quiet for a little time each and every day. And in that time, have the courage to face your fears by naming them and giving them to God. Joy amidst sorrow can't be purchased. Gentleness in the face of challenge can't be manufactured. In a non-anxious presence, in the midst of conflict, you can't pull that out of a bag. These are gifts that are given to us by the God who loves us and who guards our hearts and our minds. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If you're up for it, try an experiment for the next month, the next 30 days. Spend 10 minutes in the morning, before or after your cup of coffee, whatever you need to stay awake, (laughs) and sit still. Read a passage or two, take a deep breath, meditate if you want, but sit still and intentionally listen, look, and wait for God. And then that night, rate your day on a scale of 1 to 10. I'll buy you lunch. Not at Subway, but at a real place, outdoors, safely, social distance, of course. I'll buy you lunch if the days you meditate and pray are worse than the days you don't. Do not worry about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is our command. This is our pathway to peace naming our fears, staring them down, and then giving them to God. For a long time, I thought a perfect world would be a world devoid of fear and anxiety. But after having three kids and being married 20 years and having a larger family and friends, I I now know you can't love people without being a little worried about them. It's a little annoying but it's true. If you follow Christ's command and open your heart to love, you will experience some fear and some anxiety. You will worry about tomorrow. It's what happens. 
which is why we cannot forget that the God who loves us and longs to support us is, as Paul says, near to us. As near as our breath, as near as the quietness that's always beckoning to us, as near as the unspoken words that rest on all of our hearts. The world is not perfect, and no amount of human striving can make it so, but I'm as certain as anyone can be that the only way we can push the needle forward, the only way we can help get the train back on the tracks, the only way we can make our world a better place for all people is to reflect the joyfulness, gentleness, and peace of Christ. And a joy like that is not contingent upon circumstance, a gentleness that is persistent in the face of challenge, and a peace that passes all understanding. They are found in communion with our Creator, a God who is with us and for us and near to us in all things. So I guess what I'm trying to say is when you shudder, pray. Let your requests and anxieties be made known to God. And remember that we are never alone. The Lord is always near. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. Hallelujah. Amen.